All right, let me ask God for uh, some help before we, we get into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, uh, your grace we know is sufficient. We know that you are enough. We know that just like that song says, you're still Lord even when there's a storm going on. Whether it's, it's cancer or whether it's a car accident, you're still here, you're still Lord, and you still have us. Father, help us as we come to your word, understand and feel that truth, especially within the framework of 2 Timothy, which we, we've been in the last few weeks, Father, where we see the need for us to be witnesses for the gospel, for the glory of Christ and for the joy of other people. I pray that you'd, you'd help us see you as the anchor in the middle of the storm. We give you all the glory, Father God, in the name of Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 15. 2 Timothy 1, 15. So that knocking is actually a bird up there, I think, somewhere up there. Uh, yeah, I see it right now. Going to town. Um, so I apologize. Try not to be distracted. He clearly wanted to attend service today. Um, so so uh, take them, turn, turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy uh, 1.15. We've been in the book of 2 Timothy for a little bit now. This is Paul's final letter uh, in the Bible. And it's written to Timothy, who, if you were with us at the beginning when we started this, this uh, book, you know that Paul's called Timothy his beloved child. So this is a spiritual child, someone he loves and cares for. And Timothy's been pastoring this church in Ephesus. Paul is writing this letter from Rome in chains and about to be executed. And therefore, his letter to Timothy is marked by a sense of genuine urgency and compassion and mercy. And even if you've been with us, you know this is true, severity. He's very, very serious as he prepares Timothy for what might be ahead, knowing that he's not going to be with him. What we've seen here uh, basically is Paul exhorting Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him with regard to bearing witness to the gospel, being faithful to the testimony of Christ Jesus. Verse eight of chapter one, Paul says, do not be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel. In other words, he's telling Timothy here, listen, you're gonna need to endure hardship. You're gonna need to endure suffering. You're gonna need to endure affliction. You're not gonna need to seek these out if you're bold about your witness with Jesus. You're gonna have to endure these things specifically in his case and, and really broadly across the span of our lives for the sake of Christ and for the message of the cross. And Paul's saying, don't run away from this. Share in suffering and do it, Timothy, by the power of God, which we saw last week is, is in the week before, uh, was hinted at is it is mediated to Timothy by the word of God. The power of God flows to Timothy through the scriptures and really at the heart of the scriptures, the message of the gospel. This is how he is to endure suffering by saturating his heart with the realities and the truths 
that are in the Bible, in the gospel, and all that they mean for him and for others who trust in Jesus, who are in Christ by faith. So this is Paul's instruction to Timothy here in his final letter, but it's not just for Timothy, and I'm gonna remind us of this probably every week if I don't forget. This is for us. God intended for all of us to be recipients of this letter. This isn't just for a pastor in Ephesus in the first century. This is for every one of us who are called to bear witness to the gospel. That's not just the role of pastors or evangelists or missionaries. This is a calling for everyone who believes. And Paul now is going to take us really deeper on this same theme, first by showing us some examples, positive and negative, of people who had an opportunity to not be ashamed. And then he's gonna go even deeper by taking us to these three vivid pictures of what it looks like for the Christian in the middle of suffering, or actually what it looks like for the Christian to prepare their hearts and their lives to weather suffering. So verse 15 is where we're gonna be, and we're gonna read through the end of this chapter, and then we'll jump into the beginning of the next chapter here. Paul says to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So this chapter draws to a close. I mean, Paul didn't write it with chapters, but it draws to a close with these examples. First, Paul tells us that all who were in Asia abandoned him. They turned away from him. They should have been by his side, but they ended up leaving him. He mentions two men here, Phagellus and Hermogenes, who uh, Timothy presumably must have known. I mean, otherwise Paul wouldn't have mentioned them here. But they were among many who turned away from Paul when things got really, really bad. Probably when he was first arrested. They were ashamed of him ashamed of the situation he was in. And when Paul lists this, I mean, you read it and you're like, there's a haunting brevity to their mention. He doesn't offer any context and he doesn't express any hope for them, which is really sobering because it not only reveals his sorrow about being abandoned, but it also reveals in some measure the severity of what actually is going on, what they actually did, not just to Paul, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one they ultimately abandoned. These are people, think about this, Paul loved. He, he likely loved them. He poured his life into them. He trusted them. He cared for them personally. And now they're gone. And this here is set in contrast to one man in his household, Onesiphorus, who's this positive example of someone who's not ashamed of the gospel. Um, or he's not ashamed of Paul either, who is a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember 2 Timothy uh, 1.8, Paul says, don't be ashamed of, of the testimony of the, of, of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And that's exactly what Onesiphorus wasn't, he wasn't ashamed of Paul. Verse 16 says he wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. He came to Rome, he searched for him earnestly and he found him so that he could refresh him. He did this regardless of the shame that it would incur. He did this regardless of the danger that he was 
taking onto his shoulders. He only cared that Paul, who was a minister of the gospel, uh, a, a, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, was taken care of in the middle of his suffering. That's what Paul was after. This was his brother in the family of God. This was someone he loved and cared for. And so he invited the shame of being associated with an accused criminal, someone who's gonna be killed for their crimes, quote unquote, just to ensure that he was loved, just to ensure that he was cared for and that he was taken care of. And Paul's response to Onesiphorus's actions are, he repeats them twice. Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to, the, to his household. And then verse 18 again, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, just like he found me. May he find mercy. Paul's twin request here is that God would grant Onesiphorus and his household mercy on that day. And he doesn't mean right now. He means on the last day of human history. He's not talking about temporary mercy in this present life. He's talking about the mercy that every single human being who has ever lived needs to endure that final day. Paul says on that day in Romans 2, he says uh, that according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus on the final day which is as intrusive as you can get to a judgment. Paul does not ask for this for Phagellus and Hermogenes. You notice that? Which is a little bit startling and heavy, if, if I'm honest with you, because it seems to imply that the Lord's mercy is not for those who run away from the calling. That's heavy to me. I mean, and the reason I say that is because Paul repeats this, this, this idea, chapter two of this same text, um, same book, verse 12. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him, reign with Christ. If we endure for Christ, we will reign with him. But if we deny him, Christ will deny us. So there's this connection between the command not to be ashamed of the gospel and of Jesus in this world and the mercy that we desperately need from Christ, such that if we endure with him, we will reign with him. But if our, in our mouths or our actions or our attitudes, we are living a life that denies Christ, his reality, his gospel, we should not, Paul says, anticipate any mercy on that day. And I know that sounds he heavy, but it's really no different than from what Jesus has said. Jesus is very unambiguous about this in the gospels. Luke 9, 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Jesus says, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. That's heavy. That's heavy. And that's how Paul closes this chapter. So the question for us really, when we come to this, the end of these examples is, how can we emulate Onesiphorus? How can we endure suffering and being willing to take on shame like that man did? How can we live as Christians in this world, the 21st century, unashamed of the gospel? Paul's explained this in the last two uh, messages like we covered the first part of chapter one and it goes over and over different ways that this plays out. 
But what he wants to do next as we go into chapter two is draw out this reality and pull it out for Timothy to see in very clear, stark terms what it is like to obey verse eight in chapter one. Verse eight in chapter one is where Paul says for us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to, but to share in suffering for the sake of Christ. So I wanna read 2 Timothy 2, one through seven. Paul's gonna turn from the positive and negative examples that we just read, and he's gonna go back to Timothy. He's gonna address Timothy and draw him deeper into this, this idea, this concept, this reality. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering, he says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul pulls his, his, his attention from these examples, reflecting on what happened to him in Asia. And he looks at Timothy, spiritually speaking, and he says, you then my child in this letter, be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by that great. In the light of the weightiness of what I've just said about these three men, be strengthened by the grace that's found in Christ. This isn't a new concept. You've been with us the last two weeks. We've seen this is exactly the, 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 the sort of poetic uh, framework that has been established in each section of text we looked at. When Timothy hears and embraces the scriptures, the very sound words that Paul talked about in verse 13 of chapter one, that's how the grace of Christ Jesus flows to Timothy and strengthens him so that he can endure suffering. That's how he receives the power of God. It is through God's word. And that's how God's grace is mediated to all of us. It's through the realities that are presented in his word, the promises that he's made to us, the glories of the gospel, which is why Paul uh, in verse seven, just below this tells Timothy, listen, you need to think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think, Timothy, think, use your brain. Think about the things that I'm saying. Now, you know, a lot of us envision God giving us strength through some sort of magical connection or like downloading it into us. And that's not how the Bible depicts it. The Bible depicts the grace that we need coming to us through the word. And so Paul's saying, listen, thinking is important, Timothy. Thinking is vital. You need to think over what I say because that's how grace comes to you. It comes to understanding what you read in the scriptures. And there is no understanding what you read unless you actually think about it. And it's in the thinking, Paul says, that God's going to grant you understanding and everything that he wants you to understand. That's how he mediates to you the understanding. It's, it, and it's not just reading in a mechanical Bible plan, and Bible plans aren't bad, I, Bible, I love Bible plans, but it's not just a, a check the box kind of experience. It is to understand what is in the text. 
I want it to, to get in here. And that is how we are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is how we live like Onesiphorus, without any shame for Christ. In his case, without any shame for Paul, who was in chains, and without any shame for the gospel. He knew who Jesus was, the one that Paul preached. He knew him through the gospel at the heart of the Bible. I mean, how else was he willing to make that trip from his home or wherever he was staying to the prison to visit a man that everybody hated and thought should be dead. How did that happen? It was through the grace that Paul mentions in verse one of chapter two, that same grace. And so Paul tells Timothy, be strengthened by this grace. And not only that, look at verse two. He says, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful men. Now that word men in the Greek is anthropos. So it it, it probably, um, anthropos means mankind. It probably means more than just simply male teachers or some elders in the church, which is true. He tells them to do that in other parts of his two letters, but he's thinking about everyone, every single human being you teach, teach them in such a way, Timothy, that they can teach other people about this because that's how this grace is extended to other people. It doesn't come any other way, but through God's word. And not only that, but you need to teach people to be able to teach people. It's not as simple as just teaching them the facts about what they read there. They need to know how to communicate this to other people, which is interesting because Paul's doing this with Timothy right now. He's imparting to him what he needs to know because Paul isn't going to be around much longer. And so this is what he tells him to do. This is how you get the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Every ounce of strength in the Christian life to endure any suffering you experience, whether it's leukemia or whether it's, it's persecution, whether it's slander, whether it's getting laid off from your job because you talk about Jesus, whether you're in a season of ease or whether you are in the darkest valley, the strength you have to endure comfort and to endure, because you do need to endure comfort, believe it or not, and to endure trials comes from his book that he wrote for you. This is how we endure the realities that are in here, his promises, his commands, his encouragements, his warnings, his instructions. This is how we are strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's not talking about theories for happy living. He's not talking about ideas he has. Try it out, Timothy. He's saying, no, this is reality. This is reality. This is the heartbeat of the Christian life. Be in the word, Timothy. Saturate your soul with it because you're gonna live or die on this grace. And so what Paul does now that he's framed this is he goes into verses three through six and he shows Timothy now three vivid pictures of what this looks like in real life. Having told them to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul says in verse three, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He's taking us deeper. This is deeper than he's been before. (laughs) Same idea, same reality, but he's not just explaining it's done through God's word. He's saying, I'm gonna show you what it looks like. I'm gonna bring your eyes to what it looks like vividly. 
because he, he wants Timothy and he wants us to be able to do this, to be able to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. I mentioned last week, uh, I mean, he uses the language here, good soldier. I mentioned last week, the life of the Christian is a life of war. It really is. Um, it's, it's a life of vigilant warfare. Whether you think about yourself in those terms or not as a soldier, if you're a Christian, you are a soldier. And we have a commander who has enlisted us. His name's Jesus and he's king. And Paul's saying here, listen, you're a soldier, Timothy. You need to suffer like a good soldier for your king. And then he shows three pictures here, three vivid pictures that are really kind of the foundation of what, it, what the experience is like to have a life that is willing to do what Onesiphorus did. That's what he does here. What an unashamed life looks like. So we're gonna deal with each of these in order. The first one's a soldier. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So Paul's saying here that at the heart of sharing in suffering as a good soldier for the sake of the gospel is this reality. It is a, a soldier that refuses to get entangled in civilian pursuits, get caught up in civilian pursuits. And he does this because his aim is not to please himself. His aim is not actually even to please others, ultimately. His aim is to please the one who has enlisted him, namely Christ. And in many ways, Paul has already described Timothy with these terms. If you remember from the first week, he, we looked at Philippians 2, where Paul is telling the Philippian church, he's like, listen, I'm sending Timothy to you. And this is good news because I don't have anybody like him. He will care about your interest because he cares about the interest of Christ. Everybody else in my cadre has mixed feelings about this. Timothy's not like that. But here, Paul's reminding Timothy as he approaches the end of his life, he's saying, Timothy, listen, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Make it your aim every day to please Christ, your King, in everything you do, even if it comes at the cost of things that you enjoy. That's the interesting thing about civilian pursuits here is that they're not bad things. They're not sinful things necessarily, but for the soldier, they're a distraction. They are a distraction. They, 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 Paul's saying, don't get entangled with them. Don't let them distract you from serving Christ. This is basically, if you're familiar with Hebrews, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, hammers this theme all throughout that book. And he reaches a crescendo in Hebrews 12, one, where he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's Paul's point here to Timothy. It's not just sin that's gonna tie you up. Sin's bad, you need to deal with sin, Timothy but it, it's also every weight, every weight, anything that will cling to you and slow you down in your pursuit of the interests of Christ until you've completely stalled out and you're preoccupied with the things of the world and you look no different than anybody else. Paul's saying to Timothy, shed that dead weight, shed it. Don't let it, don't let it weigh you down. 
I mean, if you think about this in really, really, really clear terms, this is a ruthless and violent kind of life that we are called to as Christians, where we, we are called to evaluate our lives regularly and be willing to amputate anything that gets in the way of us pursuing the interest of Jesus. That's hard. I mean, I don't know where you are with your walk with Jesus. That is hard. But he's the one who's enlisted us. He's the one who's called us into his service. And if you're a Christian, that means he is your king. And so his purposes in some way, shape or form need to dominate our lives and our hearts. And so with this picture, we're seeing the kind of suffering that might be different than we expected. Because in this, in this book so far, the suffering has been like, oh, you're a missionary. Oh, you're preaching the gospel. Oh, you're on a street corner. Oh, you're in a church talking about Jesus. Of course, you're gonna get flack from society. They don't like that. But no, 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 this, this is different. The, the, the thing that Paul has in view here at the bedrock of that kind of boldness isn't just being persecuted or ridiculed for the gospel. It's far deeper and much more pervasive. To, to share in suffering as a good soldier involves removing the parts of our lives that keep us from serving Christ. Not, not only obeying commands, but like shaping our lives with the contours of his glory, pursuing who he is, his interests, his desires, his passions. That's the first picture. The second picture is the picture of an athlete. Look at verse five. Paul says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So this is a, a very different picture than a soldier. This is the picture of an athlete who is relentless in their pursuit of the crown. He wants the crown. She wants the crown, which is a symbol of, of winning and victory. And Paul says that the athlete who wants to win competes according to the rules. They do everything in their power, everything in their power to ensure that they are not disqualified, including train every day if that's what it requires. Taking my free time and, and making my bodies my body and my soul fit to accomplish the goal of getting that crown. And so the athlete, if you're into sports, you know this, they know the rules very well. They know the rules very well. They've built their lives on the rules of the game. Whether you, you conceive of those rules as the actual rules of the competition or whether you conceive of them as everything I need to do in my body to get myself to be a winner in this competition. They know the rules in such a way that they are, they are They've given themselves basically over to these rules. It's what drives them. It's what consumes them. It's what they wake up at night thinking. They are committed to the crown above everything else. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, he says, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a, a perishable wreath, a, a crown, but we an imperishable. So, and then he turns to himself and says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I should be, I myself should be disqualified. 
But Paul's point here in calling Timothy to be an athlete that competes according to the rules is he knows that there is really zero witness in the life of a believer for the gospel or for Christ if they actually do not live a life of self-control. If they're not disciplined and trained. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, be trained by the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. He's getting Timothy to recognize this is a train, this is a life of training that is essential to Christian witness because it reflects the power of the gospel. It reflects the power of God's word. The gospel, and I'm being real, like the gospel has zero value for this world if it doesn't result in changed lives, if it doesn't result in new creation. And Paul's saying here is that I fight to ensure that I remain pure and godly, not to earn salvation. I can't do that, but to display the salvation that God has wrought in me. Lest after preaching, I prove myself to be disqualified. That's heavy. Paul does not want to be disqualified. He does not want to lose the crown for any reason. He wants to win. That's what he wants. That's what he's driven to. That's his whole life. Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. He's like, my life, my life really is, is only a means to an end. I'm after the crown. I want the crown. I want to be with Christ. I want victory. So you can see here, again, with this example that Paul has, to share in suffering is not just a public witness. It is that. It is that. But because of the constant zealous pursuit of the crown through radical self-discipline, it's far more than simply that. There's a training in righteousness that we are called to, like an athlete. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, um, keep yourself pure just a simple sentence. Keep yourself pure, period. I'm like, I need to tattoo that on my soul every time the enemy tries to deceive me to think that that sin is better than obedience. That's the second picture. The third picture here is of a farmer. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.6, he says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So again, this is different than a soldier. It's different than an athlete. Now he's looking at a farmer. And it's interesting because these are not, um, you know, variations on the same theme. They're not really, they're very different. They're distinctively different. The soldier cuts out needless excess from their lives. The athlete trains every day according to the rules until they're ready to get that crown. And the farmer here, Paul says, desires the first share. He wants the first share of the crops, the greatest and the best share. And therefore he or she works hard. They work hard. And immediately, in, in, even in my own heart, but I, can, I, I know that for all of us, we, we would respond to that and say, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. Um, we don't earn our salvation. We don't earn it. We, we don't make it happen. And we would say that, that Christ did the work and we rest in him. And that's 100% true. Praise God for that. 
we rest in the finished work of Christ Jesus. But whatever Paul is talking about here, it obviously is not excluded in his idea of the Christian life with regard to the finished work of Christ. There is a work to be done in the Christian life. It's not a coasting kind of work. It's not an autopilot. It's not a passive thing. It is a labor and a hard climb. We are called to work hard. Paul uh, admits this in 1 Corinthians uh, 15 of himself. Uh, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is it with me. Now notice immediately, he doesn't, he doesn't see categories for grace and working hard as being completely contradictory experiences. In fact, if you really read what, is, what he means here, they are essential to each other. They are deeply connected with each other such that the expectation for someone who has grace is that they are working hard. Now he's not working in his own strength or flesh. That's clear here. He's working by grace, which if you remember is precisely what Paul told Timothy at the beginning of this chapter, be strengthened by the grace, Timothy, that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened like a hardworking farmer who labors relentlessly to get that first crop, that first share of the crop. And this is part of what it means apparently to Paul to share in suffering. It's a, a kind of effort that is working hard and refusing to give up, especially when it gets difficult especially when things aren't going the way that you want it to. There is a, a kind of zeal he sees in the farmer who wants the first share of the crop that will go forward despite anything that happens to them. We see this in Galatians 6, verses seven through 10. Listen to this. Paul says in very heavy words, do not be deceived, he tells the Galatian church. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. And then he says this, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul here with another agrarian analogy. This is a sermon on its own. I'm not gonna go there because we don't have time. But his point here is that all of us are sowing things right now. You're sowing things in your life. Whether you realize it or not, we are all sowing things. We are either sowing things to our flesh that reaps corruption or we're sowing things to the spirit that reaps eternal life. Whatever we sow, the, the constant here is that we will reap in good time. It will happen. And he's not just talking about, you notice he's not talking just about personal holiness, which is clearly included here. He's talking about sacrificial love for the sake of others. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about caring for those, both inside the church and outside the church. This is not a life of just avoiding bad things 
in our own lives to try to be more like Jesus, which is good and right. He's saying, this is doing good things in the lives of others, even if it comes at great cost to ourselves. Paul's saying, this is what hardworking farmers do in the field. They don't give up until the crop comes in. We sow good seed by doing good to others, especially when it is extraordinarily difficult. This is, the, this is a kind of sacrificial dedication to the, to the needs of other people. Some of us have been experiencing that tangibly with the, the help that we're offering this lady. There needs to be an effort of sacrifice in our lives for other people in the community that we live in and inside the church. So these are the three pictures that Paul makes. And I just wanna make a point before we move past this, not to grieve you, because I feel grieved when I make this point to myself. <laughs> not to grieve you, but ultimately to be your encouragement. This is not exceptional Christianity. This is not Christianity plus. In Paul's mind, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we are being called into. And Paul presents these in this chapter of 2 Timothy to underscore to Timothy what he's already commanded Timothy to do in chapter one, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He is showing these pictures to enable him and to help him and to help us to do these things. So what's so important about seeing these, these three depictions, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer? Why are these three pictures even here? Well, these three pictures to Paul are the heart of what it means to be unashamed of the gospel. They're at the heart of what it means to suffer for the sake of Christ. And in his mind, without embracing them, without approaching them, without, without taking our lives and moving in that direction, at the very least, we will find ourselves unable to bear witness for Jesus. We will find ourselves unable to endure suffering, the suffering that he's telling us will come if we do live lives that show Jesus to this world. And so it is these three dimensions that enable us to obey verse eight. These experiences like undergird the Christian life and fuel the Christian life in order to do what we are called to do. Whether it's focusing on what Christ desires over civilian pursuits, whether it's training ourselves in righteousness, whether it's refusing to give up when we're loving others and it's really, really, really hard, irregardless, those experiences are what, what they, they buttress us so that we can actually do these things. They enable us and they shape our lives in such a way that we're able to go through trials and do that for the sake of Jesus, unashamed. So Paul says here at the very beginning, be strengthened. This is why Paul at the end tells Timothy, you need to think over this. I don't want you just to read this and say, that was great. Thank you, Paul. I love those pictures. Very beautiful. He's going to think about what I'm saying to you. Think about it. Let it saturate your soul. Let it get into the DNA of who you are and become the driving force of your life in this world. Allow it to grip you. He's telling Timothy this, but like we said the first week, this is not for Timothy alone. This is for each one of us. God inspired this book with you 
in mind, with your life in mind, we need to, following Paul's lead, following Onesiphorus' lead, we need to immerse ourselves in these truths and allow them to take hold of our lives. If, if we struggle in witnessing Jesus Christ, if we struggle with that, and if you're anything like me, you do. So I'm just gonna assume you all are somewhere in the same area code, zip code I am. These are the things we need to pursue. These three pictures are what we shape our lives like to enable us to do what he's commanded us to do in verse eight of chapter one. After verse seven of chapter two, Paul begins a sentence with two words. And I'm going to just close on those two words. Oh, we don't have enough time for the rest of the passage. God willing, next week we'll look at it. But I wanna just look at these two words in the light of everything we've talked about that he said just before. Those two words are remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. After driving home the experience of sharing and suffering through these three vivid depictions, Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus. And he does this in part because Jesus perfectly embodies verses three through seven. That was his life. And I mean, if we, need, if we had time, there are countless passages in the New Testament which show this reality over and over and over again throughout his life, throughout his ministry, and especially at the end when he's about to die on the cross. But I want us to quickly and briefly shift over to 1 Peter 2 and look at a very small, narrow lens glimpse at a point in Jesus's life as he's approaching the cross where all three of these pictures are vividly captured by Peter. Not only does he embody them perfectly, but what we see here in this text is that he isn't just showing us how this happens. He is in fact, in his displaying of these three things, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, he is purchasing the very grace that we need in order to do them. Think about that. The gospel, when Christ goes to the cross, isn't just how we see these three things happen. They are that, but it's more than that. They are the very reason, they're the means by which you and I can live in the way that he describes in 2 Timothy 2. Christ embraced these three realities at their fullest extent, and therefore we can be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. So let's look at this text. First, First Peter 2, verse 21. Now, we, we have been invited by Paul to suffer for the sake of Christ. Peter's going to take us down the same road by giving us the example of Jesus. Listen to this. He says, for to this you have been called. Now stop. He's talking about us. You have been called. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, or leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And he's gonna show us the example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him, to his father, who judges justly. And then Peter says, amazingly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter starts this text by saying, listen, we've all been called to suffer for the sake of Christ. And if you read verse Peter, it's clear he's not ambiguous about this idea. And he says here that Christ has left us with an example in his own suffering that we need to follow. And then he lays out the example really clearly. He says, Christ committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. Just like an athlete, if you can conceive of one who is seeking the crown desperately, Christ knew the rules of the game and he followed them perfectly. Every single one. He never sinned, not even a bad attitude which is inconceivable to me, but it's real. He is the perfect embodiment of an athlete who, as Hebrews uh, 12, two says, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, endured the pain, endured the suffering, the toil, keeping his body disciplined. He sought the crown that was his right. It was his crown, but it became his ultimately because of his unwavering obedience to the rules. And yet in the end, we know he was reviled. He was spat upon. He was ridiculed. He was humiliated. He was brutalized. And instead of defending himself, think about this. He doesn't revile in return. He doesn't threaten in return. He could have said, wait, I'm the son of God. I'm going to destroy all of you. And he would have done us no wrong. What does he do? brutalized and naked and humiliated, he entrusts himself to the one who judges justly, his dad. He knew my dad's in control. God is in control. This is part of his purpose and his plan. And that's enough for me. That's enough for me. So think about this. In the middle of the greatest possible suffering a human being can experience, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, in the middle of that, he doesn't lash out and he doesn't even lay hold of his own divine right to honor. Like you should respect me because I made you and you're only being held together because of me. Think about that. The very spit that they spat upon his face, he held together. But he didn't lay hold of that divine right. Philippians 2 says, even in the incarnation, Christ emptied himself of his divine rights and he became a slave, a human being beset by every sickness, every plague, every temptation you and I have ever experienced. And therefore, if we are, if we are called to reject mere civilian pursuits as a good soldier of Christ, think about how much more glorious Jesus is who willingly disabused himself of his own divine privileges that were his from all eternity in order to become a man and die for sinners. This is why he's the king and we're soldiers. That right there. Because although he owned everything, he gave it all up 
and entrusted his soul to the just judge and he went to a cross to suffer horribly so that we would be redeemed. He committed himself also like a relentless, hardworking farmer. The greatest possible act of love in the world came at the greatest cost to himself and he didn't give up. He didn't give up. Not halfway, not 75%, not 99%. He went all the way down to the end, the bitter end where in his dying breath, he says, it's done, it's done. And then he dies. That's what happened on the tree. He didn't give up. He desired the best share of the crop and it required his life and he gave it freely. And so in Christ, we see these three pictures of 2 Timothy 2 embodied perfectly. And Peter is saying here in this text, he's saying, listen, you need to know, not only is this an example, but he died on that tree. He bore your sins on that tree so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Like that was what I'm, I'm here to accomplish. Not just forgiveness of sins, which is massive, but I want you to live for righteousness. The cross in this verse is the wellspring of our obedience. If you've ever obeyed Jesus, it's because of what he did right there. Any living of righteousness that has been done on planet earth before the cross or after the cross came from this fountainhead in Second Peter, in First Peter. The grace that strengthens us, that Paul has said, be strengthened, Timothy, be strengthened by the graces in Christ Jesus came through the suffering that Christ experienced here so that we could suffer for his sake. He bought it by embodying it completely in ways that we could never conceive of so that we might follow in his footsteps. This is the Christian life that Paul's inviting us into. This is the kind of commitment and zeal that Peter's saying, this is an example set by Jesus himself. It's the path we are called to walk on. And if we embrace this, if we saturate our hearts with this, we will receive the grace needed to obey. Uh, it's important for me to hear this personally. And I hope it's important for you to hear this because these things, when I read them out of context of the cross, feel alien and impossible to me. They're on a different world and I can't do them. And Jesus is like, I know. I died so that you could do them. I died so that you could live to righteousness, which is why we must come to Christ in his word, take the realities there, plead with him for grace. And it, it is only there that we will find it. And what's also important here, and I don't wanna leave this out as we close, is if underneath us is the fountain of grace that is the cross, we need to recognize that we are reaching up toward a crown. There is a crown. The athlete competes for the crown. This is vital for us to believe. There is a reward. The scriptures, as C.S. Lewis says, are filled with unblushing promises. That's intentional. God doesn't hold those out because we want, he wants us to ignore them. There's a reward at the end. And here's the thing. Here's the capstone of the reward. Here's the ultimate supremacy of the crown that we are to receive. Jesus, him. 
him, anything else you can conceive of that's good in your life that you think would be awesome to get at the end of your life is infinitesimal compared to being with the king in his presence, the one I was made for, the one for whom I was created to know and to love. And so the question we have really here is, do we love him? Like, do we want this crown? Do I want the crown? Do I long for his presence? And I would just invite you as you think about these things to let the reward of him be the fuel to your obedience. Paul, at the end of this book, says this as he's contemplating the fact that he is about to die and he doesn't know if Timothy's gonna get to him. He says, I want you to know I'm not afraid because henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, Timothy, don't miss this part, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let the reward of Jesus be the fuel in your heart to live the realities of 2 Timothy 2. Let's pray. Father God, I just do pray that your, your unblushing promises of goodness and mercy and glory would not be lost on the 10 trillion distractions we often cloud our lives with. But that you would clear away the dross so that you could see your reflection in the crucible of our souls. That you've called us to be soldiers for the greatest of kings. That you've called us to be athletes pursuing the highest crown in the universe. That you've called us to be farmers who will reap eternal life in the end because you've, what you've done through your son on the cross. Help us to see the source in the beautiful reality that Jesus suffered for our sake to set for us an example and to purchase for us the very grace needed to make that example our experience in life. I plead with you, Father, do this for me, for my sake, and for the sake of my friends who I love. Glorify your name in our time of worship, Father God. In the name of Jesus, amen.